part of my training young people to think well and engage the culture well is helping them address the challenges and objections that come up against Christianity and the ethical issues that they have to face. It's always fun after working with a group of students, sending them off to college or whatever it may be, and kind of getting that call back where they're faced with a new challenge, one that I was not able to cover in my classes, but uh, has now kind of come up against them and they're coming back saying, hey, how do I think about this? How do I address this issue? So that happened twice in the last few weeks. Two different students reached back out to me with a question very similar in nature about what heaven will be like and how can those in heaven be happy knowing that some of their loved ones are going to be in hell. We're going to be addressing that question and actually a video that was sent that one of my former students saw on TikTok that he sent my way and said, how would you respond to this video? The one that we're going to start with actually came from a youth pastor who was sent this picture from one of his students saying, hey, this was taught in a high school class, a high school philosophy class, raised this objection against God. And uh, what would you say about this? And so it was sent my way as well to kind of work through and try to help people think well about that argument. So that is what we're going to be doing today. And that is the exciting thing that we get to talk about is helping you think well against two objections that were raised against Christianity that students were faced with. My name is Ryan Polly, the president of Think Well here, training you to think well and engage the culture well. And if you love what we do, hey, share it, pass it along as well as if you want to help support the ministry of Think Well, we are in need of financial supporters. If you want to support in that way or pray or just help us get the message out there. I would love to be able to just continue doing this and we're going to keep doing this, but we need some of that help. So, hey, uh, that is what we're here to do. And that's what we're going to do in the show today. So join me as we kind of look at this first question or this first argument. So in the first one, oh, and I posted here and I forgot to mention, uh, if you want to call into the show, have a conversation, you want to kind of work through an issue that you have been uh, faced with, I did put a link in the live chat. If you're watching on YouTube, you can click on that link in the live chat. Uh, send a message with your question, and uh, and then I will get to you uh, when we have kind of a little break or when we are able to have that kind of conversation. So you can do that if you want to talk about something different other than the two objections that we're going to look at now. But uh, the first one that I'm going to go to is actually comes from a classroom in Florida. This was a high school philosophy class where, according to the student, the youth pastor, or sorry, not the youth pastor, the teacher was using this argument in philosophy class to show that God does not exist. And so uh, I'm going to pull that argument up here. And if you're listening on podcast, I'll explain it. But hey, if you want to jump over to YouTube, uh, you can see it there as well. Here's the picture. Let me move over here. So this is um, an argument against God, the teacher is claiming, from the illusion of free will. And there are five premises of this argument. And it goes like this. Premise one, a truly all-knowing being will know everything that will ever occur in the future before it occurs. Premise two, an all-knowing being's knowledge cannot be flawed. Premise three, from points one and two, an all-knowing being will know in advance what decisions will be made before a decision is made. And from item two, this knowledge must be true. From three, all decisions, this is premise four, have already been made in the mind, or sorry, in the all-knowing entity's knowledge before they occur. Therefore, conclusion from four, nobody can freely make a can freely make a decision because its result is known in advance. 
Now, based on the message from the students, this was not just saying that free will is an illusion, but it seemed like they're saying they're, the teacher was using this to prove or to show that God does not exist. So I'm assuming what the teacher is going with this is that because we know that we do have free will, therefore an all-knowing being does not exist. Because if an all-knowing being did exist, there would be no free will. Since there's free will, that means that an all-knowing being does not exist. So again, this student sitting in his high school philosophy class being presented an argument against the existence of God and then sending it to his pastor who sent it over to me. So let's talk through this argument here really quick. Uh, and I want to challenge you again to think about this for yourself and go, where would you, where did this go wrong? Because this is a very common, a very common, yet unfortunately very bad argument. And I think that it kind of goes wrong in two different ways that are connected. So let's kind of work through this. Number one, an all true, an all truly all-knowing being will know everything that will ever occur in the future before it occurs. I would agree with that, right? If God knows all things, then He knows all things in the future before that thing happens. An all-knowing being, knowledge cannot be flawed. I would agree with that as well. God, knowing all things knows what will happen. He's not guessing. He's not going to be wrong. Like, oh, I think I know this. And then turns out he doesn't know it. No, uh, God, knowing all things, that knowledge is not going to be flawed. Therefore, yeah, uh, he knows those things. So premise three from points one and two, an all-knowing being will know in advance what decisions will be made before a decision is made. Uh, from item two, then the knowledge must be true. I would agree with the argument so far. Here, though, I think is where the argument goes wrong. Premise four, all decisions have already been made in the all-knowing entity's knowledge before they occur. So here's where I want to stop and think through this with you. How does it follow that God goes from knowing all things will happen in the future to the decision has already been made? The decision has been made as in that future event has taken place versus no, it will be made but it has not been made yet. Notice the decision has already been made, puts that now, that action in the past, right? And, and this doesn't follow, I think, the, the view of time that I have, and I actually want to talk about that more in a future show, but, but I hold to an A-theory view of time, which says the past is in the past, we are in the present, and the future is potential. Uh, this is, you know, some t people refer to this as a common sense view of time, how we understand it, that the future has not happened yet that I will make that decision, but I have not made that decision yet. So God knows I will choose to do something tomorrow, but I haven't made that decision in his mind because that time has not come yet for me to make that decision. Then from three, it says, or from four, no one can freely make a decision because its result is known in advance. This now creates a really big second problem. And here I use some illustrations with my students that I kind of want to work through with you. So first of all, let me put it like this. God knows before the creation of the world what free creatures would freely choose. God knows what we would choose given different circumstances. God knows what I would choose if he would make me. Uh, and, and before I exist, he knows what I would choose given these different circumstances. God then creates... He actualizes that world. He creates the world that he made, and now he knows how free creatures will freely choose. The freedom doesn't go away. God knows how I will freely choose based on how I would have freely chosen given different circumstances, and then that action comes, and then I freely choose that action. The free choice does not magically go away 
the moment God creates a world. If I would have freely chosen this, and then he creates it, he actualizes it, now I will freely choose it, the freedom is still intact. There is no, no reason, logically speaking, why freedom gets removed the moment God creates or he knows what will freely happen. But here's the second way in which I, I work through this with my students. And I showed this argument to my students after it was sent to me. And, if, and one of them kind of responded this way and it made me one of those proud teacher moments. Like, yes, you listen. I often in my class hold up a marker. Now it's being blocked by the picture. I hold up a marker like this. If you're looking on YouTube, I'm holding a, it's not a marker. It's a, it's a Maven pen in front of my face. And I said, look, I know that if I let go, this will fall. Does my knowledge that the pen will fall cause the pen to fall? Stop and think about that one for a second before we go on. Does my knowledge that the pen will fall cause, make the pen fall? And the answer is no, because here's a really, really important point that this argument misses. Knowledge does not stand in a causal relationship with the physical world. Knowledge does not stand in a causal relationship with the physical world. Knowing something will happen does not cause it to happen. God knowing what choice you will make does not cause you to make that choice. And so this argument assumes that God's knowledge removes that free will, which it doesn't. And so for those two reasons, God knowing what you will freely choose does not take away that freedom and his knowledge does not cause any of your choices. Therefore, there is nothing logically coherent or, or, or it doesn't follow logically to say that because an all knowing being will know everything that will occur in the future. Therefore, you have no free will. This in no way shows that free will is an illusion. Now, let me stop here for a second and, and address something else that kind of often flows from this is because students will often come to me and say, look, Mr. Polly, I, you know, I want to be a Christian, but you know, God has a plan for my future. God knows the future. And therefore I have no free will if God knows my future. And so I want to reject a Christian worldview. I adopt a view that has no God because I want to be free. And I often, again, challenge them to think through that and say, hold on a second. Because what you want, I don't think is offered in a secular view, as well as what you think is true of a Christian view is not actually true of a Christian view. You see, if you talk to secular materialistic, naturalistic philosophers, Sam Harris is one, Daniel Dennett is another, they will say that based on a materialistic view of the world, a secular view of the world, you have no free will. Why not? Because you are just a brain and you did not choose your brain. All of your actions, all of your thoughts, all of your desires are the outworking of a brain that you did not choose that was programmed by the naturalistic process of evolution in which you had no control over. You are just a robot in a sense. You are just doing what your brain has been programmed to do. You didn't choose that brain. So Sam Harris, again, I've talked about this on the show plenty of times where he has a video on the Joe Rogan podcast where he says, lift up your two hands. And then he says, raise one of them in the air. And he raises one up and he says, you didn't choose that. Your brain made you do it. And if you would rewind the, the, the moment of time and replay that over and over, you would always pick your right hand because the previous events in your life had, have added up over time to cause you 
to raise your right hand. Because you are not conscious, consciousness is non-physical. Because you don't have a soul or a mind, those are non-physical uh, parts of you. And if, if only the physical world exists, then you don't have those things. Then you don't have the consciousness and the thinking required to give you that free will. And so you have Daniel Dennett saying free will is an illusion. It's your brain playing tricks on you. You can watch this in a big think video. I'll, I'll tag that below on YouTube as well, where he says it's like, it's like magic. And he goes, it's not like, like magic, magic. It's like stage magic, right? Where it's just your brain playing tricks on you to think that you are conscious. And so it's actually in a strict secular view of the human, the body that says you don't have a soul, you don't have consciousness, you don't have a mind, that actually then you don't have free will and everything is causally determined by the brain states at that moment. And your past experiences cause you to do each thing that you do at each moment. See, it's actually a secular view that removes free will and leads to a deterministic universe where everything is determined. The Christian view, on the other hand, as I've kind of pointed out with this argument, does not remove your free will because God is creating a world knowing how you would freely choose given certain circumstances. You then choose those and you're doing so freely. Once he creates, he knows how you will choose. God knowing what you will do does not cause you to do those things because God has created you free. He has created you with moral responsibility, right? That's at least a way that I can put it in which most Christians would agree, even the Calvinists, uh, most of them are going to hold to some sort of moral responsibility that we have some actions and some choices that we are making that are not determined or caused by God. And so it's actually God, because he gives us a mind, he gives us a will, we then have the ability to exercise that will in making choices. And so if we are going to deny the existence of God because there is free will and we think that God takes away that free will, we are misunderstanding, I think, a Christian view of how God has created us to be. And I think we're also misunderstanding the secular view of secular philosophy and secular psychology that actually leads to a deterministic universe. So this argument there, I'm going to pop it up again. If you guys just showed up, this is the one that was sent to me as a high school classroom philosophy class, I think is a, not a good argument. I think it has been refuted many times, not just by me, yet it continues to be presented uh, as a good argument against the existence of God. But I think it's a non sequitur. I don't think that premise four follows from the previous pre uh, premises. Decisions have not been made. God knows they will be made. And God's knowledge does not take away that free will. So there is the first argument. Hopefully I've worked through that. And for those who sent it to me and are watching this, I hope that helps. Uh, again, if you want to call into the show and kind of work through that further, you can click on that link in the live chat and, or send in a question. If you don't want to call in, but you want to send in a question, I'd be happy to take those questions. That leads us to the second thing that was sent to me. This is the TikTok video on heaven. And so let me just actually, let me play the video. You can see the argument that is being made um, about heaven. And then we're going to stop for a little bit, think through that and see how we would respond. Here we go. I know that my mom does believe that if I were to die, that I would go to hell and would be suffering for eternity. And so the question really comes down to, since according to what Christians will tell you, heaven, there is no suffering and there is no sorrow. But how is it then that my mom could be in heaven with the knowledge that I am burning in hell for all of eternity and not be sad or sorrowful about that fact? And if she's able to be in heaven and not be sorrowful or sad about that fact, then it begs the question, is she even my mom anymore? Because that is a massive part of what it means to be a human. 
So it almost seems as though that wouldn't even be my mom in heaven at that point. That would be some kind of a, a carbon copy with certain elements of the human experience just stripped away. All right, there we go. There is the argument. So again, this was one of my former students sent this to me, saw this and said, hey, Mr. Polly, what would you say in response to this? Now, I think there are two things to think through. Think about what was presented. The first thing is I think that he presents a false dichotomy here. Do you see it? Right. Do you see the false dichotomy, right? Where he presents two options. He's saying either this or this. It's not this. Therefore, it has to be this. Right. And it's a false dichotomy because I do think that there is a third option, one that he is not including here. So what are the two options? Either my mom will remember me and she will be sad and have sorrow or she will not remember me or sorry, she won't be sad and sorrowful. And that's be sorry. And that's because she won't remember me because she's not really my mom. She's just a carbon copy of my mom stripped of, you know, the, 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 the things that make us human. And so either there won't be sadness because she's not my mom or she will be my mom and there's sadness. Now, here's when the next part comes in. The Bible is clear. There will be no sadness in heaven. So if she can't therefore be my mom. The only option left is that it will not be my mom in heaven. It will only be a carbon copy. So I think the first thing to address here with this video is to point out that this is a false dichotomy. Those are not the only two options. And this leads to the kind of the big question or the big problem that was addressed or, or brought up to me by one of my other former students in his like first week of college. Uh, this was raised to him and then he reached out to me for some thoughts is how is it possible then that we can go to heaven and be happy, not experience sadness, knowing that some of our loved ones are in hell? How is that possible? Right. And so here in this video, he's assuming it's not possible. Right. He's assuming that the only way that that could possibly be happen is if you're not really yourself and you you're not yourself in heaven, because if you are yourself, it's not possible. You will be sad. There's no sadness in heaven. Therefore, that can't be true. I want to suggest the thought that it is possible. Now, this is one of those things. And I've, I told the students as I responded to this, this is one of those really hard arguments. These are really or hard response in that it's not necessarily the most um, emotionally satisfying, right? That, that there are responses that we can give that are true, but it doesn't necessarily ring deep where we go, yes, that is completely satisfying to me. Now all of my fears or all my pains or all my issues are gone. But just because it's not necessarily emotionally satisfying doesn't mean it's not true. So here's a few things that we have to think through as we consider what is being said here. Number one, the Bible is clear that there is no sadness. There's no pain. There is no sorrow in heaven. Um, however, I think the Bible is also clear that we do remain ourselves. Yes, we have glorified bodies as first Corinthians talks about chapter 15, right? The, the perishable puts on the imperishable, um, and the, Im the mortal puts on the Im immortality, but there's nothing in scripture suggesting that we become fundamentally different. In fact, every part in scripture in which a dead person comes back, where we see this in the Old Testament, where people come back from the dead, they're recognized that people look at them and, and recognize who they are. This happened with Jesus as well. Yes, there's a point in which he he disguised himself so the people could not see, uh, but they recognized him. He had the holes in his, in his hands and his side, um, and, and it, he wasn't a fundamentally different person. It was Jesus. It was the resurrected Jesus. It was the glorified 
Jesus. And so every example in scripture we see of someone coming back from the dead uh, is recognizable, is themselves, is not just a separate carbon copy. But what we have to recognize is this. When we stand before the gates of heaven, let me pull something up here as I'm talking about this. What we will be aware of, or at least what we will experience more fully is the goodness and the justice of God, right? The goodness and the justice of God. Think about this for a second. When we stand there and we experience final judgment, we will see firsthand the opportunities that God gave and the ways in which people rebelled against him. And so I think this kind of helps us as we start to recognize that, yes, there will be no grief in heaven, but it's not because that we forget everything, but we have to, but it's because we will fully see or better experience the justice of God, right? Think about this. Think about a fair judge. When a fair judge punishes someone and sends that person to prison for the wrong that they've done, we don't cry foul. We don't say, how dare he? How dare she? How that's so immoral. That's so unfair. We go, no, this person got what they deserved, right? We will see uh, more fully how God reached out to that child, how God revealed himself to that person. I think we will see more fully as Romans chapter one says that the attributes of God, namely his divine nature, his eternal power have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that they have, he has made so that they are without excuse, right? Now we see there's no excuse for this. How, how could this be true? But I think that on that side, we will go, oh yeah, I see it now, right? Where maybe we were blind to it in this life. We will go, oh my goodness. Yeah, God was overwhelming in the amount of evidence he gave to where it's like, you had no reason. Right, when I talk about this with my high school class, I show a picture of a long time ago when I was playing hide and go seek uh, with one of my nephews. And, and he was at the age where he took a blanket and just threw the blanket over himself and sat in the middle of the floor. Right. And so there's a sense in which you can say, like, do I see my nephew? Well, no, he is completely covered. I don't see any part of him. But do I know that my nephew was there? Of course. Right? There's a clear outline of a head and shoulders and a body sitting cross-legged on the floor. And if I were to go, you know, I don't think he's there. I don't, I, I don't think he's under that blanket. That's probably just a box or something like that. Anyone would be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Come on, Ryan. Clearly that's your nephew. You should know better. Right? And I think that we have the same kind of small, in a small way, similar thing when it comes to God is that God has revealed himself to us. Yes, he is transcendent. Yes, he has remained hidden in a sense. But he has also revealed us himself to us in a way in which we should be able to clearly see, yeah, he's there, that we are then without excuse. And so I think that when we stand at the final judgment, that we will more fully see the justice of God. We will see how he revealed himself to all people. We will see how he reached out to that child. And we will understand that that child's final destiny is fully on them where I firmly believe that each person will go, and this might sound weird at first, but they go where they want to go. Not that people want hell, but people don't want God. I think it's a simple question of asking someone like, do you want God in your life? For those who say, no, I don't want God. God will give him, God, give them a life without him. And those who say, yes, I do want God. God will give them a life with him. 
again, I think this is true whether you're a Molinist, Arminian, or Calvinist, that the unregenerate will not want him, and therefore they will reject him and they get what they want. Or there are many and they could choose, but they still reject. Or there's the regenerate person who chooses God and is saved. Or there's the person that freely chooses him and is saved. Ultimately, the question becomes, do you want God? And so I think that we will fully see God's justice. We'll fully see how God revealed himself to that person, to that individual. But we will also then see how that person made choices in rebellion against God. That there was no unfairness. And we'll have a better understanding of that person's sin of what they, we will just have a better understanding of sin in general, that we will finally learn about the evil and, and more fully understand the evil and destruction, the destructive nature of sin. We will have a, maybe a more of a godlike view of sin and a hatred for that sin. And we will see God's holiness and his need to punish sin. So I think all of that will help us, at least in a sense, go, I get it, right? We may not be happy about it, Right. In the sense that I, I, I you know, I, I think this is true. I tell my students um, that, you know, I, I'm not happy about prisons in the sense that I'm not happy about hell. I'm not happy that it exists, but it's necessary. I think hell is necessary just like prisons are necessary. If we had a country with no prisons, no punishment for evil, no justice, that would be worse. Yes, it would be better if everyone just chose rightly and, and we never needed to send anyone to jail because no one ever did any wrong, any wrong. But that unfortunately is just not the case. People freely choose to do wrong and then we, they must be punished to have true justice. And so we will see that. And so I'm not happy about hell. I'm not happy that it exists. It's not a good thing in that sense, but it's a necessary good in the sense that people um, are doing wrong and are going to rebel against God, are going to reject him, and they don't want a life with him. And I don't think it would be good for God to force them into heaven against their will. So I think these things can help us realize that, that it's fair and it's needed. It makes me think, too, of a testimony that I heard uh, from a mother who, whose son was taken to jail. And, and again, like her testimony, and she mentioned that, look, she knew, uh, her son knew that what he was doing was wrong. Her son was fully aware that this was going to catch up to him one day. He was warned by his parents and other people multiple times, and eventually it caught up. He continued his behavior, and it led to him going into prison. And she talked about how she, she wasn't necessarily mad or in grief. Yeah, she wished her son would have changed, wished... He wouldn't have done those things, but she knew that the justice system did what it was designed to do, what it should have done, and that was punish her son. His wrong actions needed punishment, and to let him go free would be an injustice. And so and while she's not happy, she recognized this was the right thing. This was the good thing. And so um, I think that we will be able to look at this in a very similar way, maybe in a very slight, you know, in a, in a slightly similar way, um, should God, you know, and, and if people want to argue, well, no, like this shouldn't happen. It's like, well, should God not punish evil? Should God not punish sin? That would make him unjust. Should he force people into heaven against their will? I think that would make him unloving. All right. And so I think based on this, I would say for this reason, I don't think that anyone who gets into heaven and doesn't see a loved one will experience grief or pain. I think for that, for most people, they're going to get to heaven and see someone or, or not see someone that they know that one of their loved ones will not be there. And instead uh, of experiencing that grief and pain, I think that we will know what happened was best 
best in the sense of what was needed, what they desired, and God gave them over to their will, and that we'll be able to rest in that knowledge. Again, that may not be emotionally satisfying, but I think it is biblically accurate. Uh, we will no longer have the effect of sin on us, which causes us to distrust God. I think that is a huge point here, and that's maybe we'll all finish up. And so if you have any questions, send them in. This is going to be a shorter show today. But I think it's uh, one of the big problems is our distrust uh, for, of God, that we don't trust that what he's doing is right. right? This, is, this is the nature of sin to begin with. It's when we trust God and what he says is best, then we just do it. Um, but when we don't trust it, God and what he says is best, that is when we rebel against him and we say, no, God, I want to do things my way. I want what I want and I want it now. Right. And, and this is true of any authority relationship. If a student trusts that what I'm doing is best for their learning, then they're going to do that homework. Right. When a parent says, hey, I want you to stay home Friday night instead of going and hang out with your friends. If, you, if the student truly understands that is what's best for me, then they say, OK, yes, mom and dad, I understand. But if they don't understand, they think that mom and dad are just trying to steal their fun or take away, you know, whatever it may be, and they don't trust their parents, then that's when the student pushes back. That's when we rebel. That's when we sneak out of the house. That's when we fight back. I go, hey, that's not fair. You're ruining my life. <laughs> and then there's a time where we go, okay, I don't get it, but I trust you that what you're doing is right. Now, the difference though, is that in our earthly life and our earthly parents and earthly authorities, there are times when they're not doing what's best for us that what they're telling us to do really is not best. The difference though, is that God in knowing all things actually knows what is best and is doing the best for us. And so when God says, this is the way it's going to work, we may not understand, but I think that we can trust in him, right? In the same way that, you know, when I take my 10 month old son to get vaccines and I say, look, this is good for you. <laughs> he doesn't understand why. Uh, and if he could talk and he could think in those ways, he'd probably like, this makes no sense. You're crazy. This hurts. This can't be good for me. Where's supposed to be? Trust me. Trust me. I know what's best, right? How much better is the all-knowing, all-loving father and saying, trust me, I know what's best. So if God says, trust me, this is possible. This is the way it's going to work. Then I think that we can rest assured that that's the way it's going to work. And so there's a sense of me in which scripture says that we're going to recognize each other. I think, I think it says that there's, there's no pain or no suffering, no sorrow. And so that's going to be the way it is. And it's not about removing my humanness from me, not being a carbon copy of myself in order to, to achieve that. Um, but, um, uh, I do think that there are also, as I've presented here, some ways to think through this and to consider what it will be like to be in heaven when some of our loved ones are not there. Again, I think that we are going to be so satisfied in the presence of Jesus, in his goodness, in his justice, and holds holiness. We will have a more full picture, a more full understanding, and therefore we will not be upset. We will not be sad, but we will trust in him and rejoice in him. So uh, there's a few thoughts on two arguments that I think is either trying to disprove, you know, heaven or disprove the existence of God that were sent to me recently. All things pass away, all things, all becomes new. Just wrote a poem about this earlier. Hey, I'd love to check that out. Uh, shoot me a link uh, and I'll check out that poem that you wrote on that. Otherwise, um, I don't see any other questions. So today's a short show, um, but oh, let me tell you, hold on for a second. Um, some books that came in. Uh, number one, boom. Truth Changes Everything, Dr. Jeff Myers. This interview is uh, next week, I think. Yeah, next. Nope. 
Yeah, next Wednesday, the 19th, October 19 at 4 p.m. Pacific time, Wednesday. Truth changes everything, how people of faith can transform the world in times of crisis. Dr. Jeff Myers, that is going to be the next interview on the show. I also got this massive thick book. The Comprehensive Science, sorry, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life and the Cosmos. This is co-edited by William Dembski, Casey Luskin, and Joseph Holden. It is also has about 20 or so different authors writing 48 chapters on different aspects of science and faith. First of all, I just wanna thank the Discovery Institute for sending this to me. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much if you're watching, that you are. But hey, if you do watch, thank you so much for sending me this book. Also, um, I'm gonna be reaching out to some of these authors. Uh, and setting up some interviews. So if there are specific questions you have on science and faith, be sure to send those in. Contact me on social media at RyanPolly3 and, uh, and I'll be sure to connect with the, with the relevant scholar who has expertise in that area. As well as the last thing is I am currently reading uh, Richard Dawkins' book uh, published back in 2019, Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide. And so this is his guide to how you can outgrow your belief in God, that it's kind of this childish belief that people have. And here's how you can grow up and stop believing in God. And so I am uh, currently three chapters through, and I'm going to be starting a, a short series, kind of working through the arguments that he presents in that book um, and, and how to think well about those arguments and how to refute them and realize that really their belief in God makes sense and is the best explanation for why everything exists and why the world is the way it is. And so it's not a childish belief, but it is a belief based on good reason. So I'm going to be working through that book, Outgrowing God by Richard Dawkins. So if any of these inter interviews sound interesting to you, why don't you subscribe? Check it out. Uh, get updates on what is happening. And, um, Again, if you want to uh, kind of continue to think well about these things and help others think well about them, I'd love for you to share the information because again, that's one of the best ways in which this spreads. Uh, I try to bring you good, quick content. That's why today's a short show. I just had these two things I wanted to work through with you and help you think well about uh, that were sent to me. And um, other than that, I don't wanna waste much of your time. And so I wanna get you to think well on these things and uh, bring more interviews and more uh, uh, important conversations your way that can help you live better as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, uh, ready to defend the faith and to live well. So with that being said, if you want to come along, support think-well.org slash donate is the way in which you can give back to this ministry and help support this new young ministry in its infancy stage. Uh, get off the ground. I would greatly appreciate that. And other than that, uh, I am signing off for today. So hey, have a wonderful rest of your week. I'll see you next Wednesday, my interview with Dr. Jeff Myers. And while you do, uh, continue to think well about God. Christianity, and Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. God bless. Bye, everybody.